From the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, this is Human Centered. I'm John Markoff. Today we talk with Dan Kelly, a 2018-19 CASBIS Fellow. Dan is an associate professor of philosophy at Purdue University who focuses on the intersection of philosophy, cognitive science, moral theory, and evolution. We'll hear Dan's thoughts on cognitive bias, social norms, and ethics in technology. I overheard you use the term homo normicus while you were here at CASPIS. I'm curious, what is homo normicus? What is homo normicus? Um, it's a word I came up with a while. <laughs> uh, so, so, okay, the idea here is something like this. There's an image of what humans are and how humans make decisions and what drives human behavior, which has become baked into a lot of our uh, theoretical imaginations, particularly in, in the West. Um, but it, call it homo economicus. Um, and it sees humans, it's sort of this, this image of humans as um, behaving in ways such that they're trying to maximize self-interest um, and the conception of rationality at the heart of it is sort of an economic conception of rationality and that this is basically what drives human nature um, or sorry human behavior and it's something you know at the heart of, of human nature and I think it is, and I, I'm not alone in this in any way, shape, or form, um, but it's, it's a vast simplification. So it's in part right, and you know, it gets something right about um, uh, humans and human psychology, uh, but it is very much incomplete, and to the extent that we rely on it too much, we get um, a distorted picture, and we build policies and institutions for humans which aren't, um, aren't sort of sensitive to and harnessing all of our best impulses. So human normicus is, this, uh, is an idea. So I do a lot of work on the cognitive psychology of social norms, uh, and human normicus is just, uh, you know, if you need something which is catchy and is sort of a contrast class to human, uh, to homo economicus, homo normicus would be something like, well, another really key part of human psychology and human nature is that we respond to social norms and we cognize social norms. And this is a very large part of what drives how we behave and how we understand ourselves and how we interact with each other. Um, so humans are able to um, cooperate on these sort of scales which are unprecedented in human, uh, sorry, in, in nature. Um, and what, you know, we can build cities and we can send people to the moon and we can build internets. Um, and part of what allows us to do this is um, we're extremely sensitive to, um, to norms, to, to rules um, which uh, govern social life. And when people violate a norm, and other people sort of trans they punish them, um, but they, they tell you how to go about your day and they help us, um, I mean, some morality, moral norms are a key part of moral norms. And were these concepts and thoughts sort of how you were drawn into the Moral Political Economy Project here at CASBIS? Yeah, so, so the moral political, building a new moral political economy uh, project, I got pulled in via some conversations with uh, Federica and um, some other members of that um, that group, uh, because I wrote, a, I wrote something about um, the plurality of human values and the cultural variability of human values. And so you might think that human, uh, homo economicus um, is an expression of human values and what humans value, which is uh, very much centered on individualistic Western 
um, picture, and it's at the heart of the kind of political economy which has dominated for a while, which comes out of Adam Smith and a little bit more Thomas Hobbes. Um, and, and this connects back to some of what I uh, was talking about with the moral progress stuff. Um, I think those sorts of values and those sorts of norms um, are one set of norms, and they give us a certain kind of good, and they allow us to understand human human nature and human morality in one way, but it's only one facet of a much larger and more diverse picture. And so human, uh, the idea of homo normicus is give us a picture of human psychological nature which allows for that sort of variability and which can accommodate um, a, a wider range of values that we might want to try and build a moral political economy um, such that it can accommodate and be sensitive to a much wider range of values. And what's your current project? Yeah, my, my current project is I'm, I'm writing a book on culture and human nature and specifically human moral nature. So how our, our sort of cultural capacities have allowed us to become extremely social and the way it's allowed us to build more and more sophisticated social organizations and how that is sort of inflected with all forms of uh, different kinds of morality and then how that shapes our very identities. And you're also here, on, um, you're at CASBIS visiting, working on a, a different project, a paper you're working on with, collaborating on? Or? Yeah, it's, so it's an idea that we've had for a couple of years. We've sort of batted it back and forth. And um, this is Michael Brownstein. He's a, a, a CASBIS fellow this year. And then the <clears throat> working title of the paper is The Ethics of Consistency. So we're thinking through how, um, how this value of consistency, which you might think of as primarily a logical value, like different sentences or different claims can be compatible or incompatible with each other, is also something we, we prize in people. Like if someone is consistent over time or if the different facets of themselves are uh, consistent with each other, when, when that's the right way to evaluate them or when, when using that as a standard of evaluation can actually lead us astray from a moral point of view. So the, uh, the obvious question is, where are you guys on the question of moral progress and whether we are making <laughs> What did you guys conclude? Um, so, so I think there's a pretty good case that along an, a lot of sort of global measurement dimensions, moral progress has, has been made in the last couple of centuries, you know, maybe the last couple of millennia. Um, you know, child mortality rates are down. There's not a country in the world anymore in which slavery is legal. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen anymore, but there's progress that it's not even like countenanced as being legal anymore. Um, violence, depending on how you measure it, may be down. On the one hand, I think there's good reason to think um, that moral progress has been made on some dimensions. That doesn't mean it's perfect or that we're all the way where we want to be. Um, part of what we raised there was more thought needs to be put in, from philosophers anyway, more thought needs to be put into this question of how, how sort of collective level advances in moral progress might come at the expense of more personal um, level values that have a moral valence to them. So the sorts of community and meaning that really make lives worth living. Um, a lot of the complaint you hear is as the world gets globalized and all this, um, you know, what, whatever sort of institutions allow the sorts of higher level or more, more abstract global kinds of moral progress might come at the expense of human, very sort of human day-to-day -day kinds of um, ethical values. And thinking about the trade-offs between those two and if we, can, if we can get both of them at the same time is something which I think really deserves more thought. Where does your thinking line up with, I mean, I guess sort of from a popular point of view, this has been framed by Steven Pinker from yep. most of us. Do you break with Pinker on any points? Or? Um, I think he's a little too optimistic and he focuses too much on what, what uh, Michael and I thought of as these, these sort of higher level, more abstract ways of measuring what moral progress might, might amount to. 
Um, I, I know there's all kinds of um, criticisms about the, even the way that that stuff has been measured, and you know maybe there's been um, stacking the deck in one way or other with all the statistics, and I just don't take a stand on that. Um, but it's it's the lack of focus, which is paid to to a plurality of values, some of which are much more again sort of based on the day to day characteristics of a life and what what emotional and um, moral well-being amounts to for, for a person rather than a corporation or a, something which can be captured with the statistics over the course of different generations. Yeah. Right. You know, one thing that occurred to me that you would have an interesting perspective on, you, you came from, you grew up with a generation, which I think is, uh, when you were in college, 20, are you 20 years out of college? Or um, yeah, that's right, just over 20. 20. Right. So it's about a generation. and, and uh, you know, I I ran into this summer because I was back to I went back to a summer camp that I had attended mm-hmm. as a kid and I'd worked there and so I I ran into the young staff who were in their twenties who were probably I was thinking they're probably about the age of the students you're teaching now right. so uh, and I was stunned the particular thing I ran into was the issue of cultural appropriation which is subject we don't need to go into <laughs> but but they were so different as a generation and mm-hmm. I'm just wondering your view about the students you're teaching versus the students you went to school with in terms of the kinds of things you study. Is it really dramatically different? So, yeah, it's a great question. And it's after not having to teach last year and going back this year. I, I don't know if it's just because I was away for a while or if there's, there is, you know, we're, we're nominally on the cusp of the shift from millennials to Gen Zers. And the, the new generation, the, so this year's students are digital natives. They, there was no time at which they weren't online. Um, and if there was if there was sort of a tipping point on these sorts of sensibilities, so cultural uh, appropriation is a good one. Um, they seem to be much more sort of aware of group membership and identity and ways in which people from different groups can can help each other out or be offensive to each other. And, and in a way which I just was certainly not when I was in college. It was I went to a fairly homogenized, not homogenized, there wasn't a lot of diversity at the college campus I went to or even the high school that I went to. But we also didn't have the internet, which was bringing perspectives from all over the globe just sort of at your fingertips. Um, And so I think this is a generation which being on screens since they've been awake, basically, um, makes them aware of cultural differences and that we need to think more carefully about how we navigate those differences in a way that was unprecedented when I was young. I wanted to ask about your your earlier work, um, and I think it was in 2011 you you wrote a book about disgust. I mean, that's a wonderful title. Yeah. <laughs> did you uh, plan it for a popular audience, or did it have that kind of an impact? Did you reach a popular audience with this discussion of this kind of? Um, it's it's very easy to connect to, right? So everyone is familiar for, with a first. You don't need any theoretic background to know what it's like to be grossed out by like stepping in dog crap or something. Um, so, so on the one hand, there's there's this easy connection to something everyone can con- conceptualize. Um, yeah, I, the title it's almost like a Malcolm Gladwelly title. It's a single word with an exclamation point after, um, <laughs> uh, which may have been a little misleading. So, so I tried to write the book in a way which was accessible for anyone willing to put in a little bit of work, you know, it's a little bit more in the trenches than a New Yorker article or something. Um, but I very much wanted to reach an interdisciplinary audience. And so you can't, when you're doing that, you can't just assume familiarity with technical lingo um, that's, you know, from one particular discipline. So I didn't write the book to answer your question explicitly. I didn't write it aiming for a popular audience, but I wrote it in ways which um, I could see it sort of tipping in that direction. Um, and so did it reach a popular audience? 
Um, you know, I, I remember seeing it on the bookshelf at the Strand in New York, and I, I considered that a huge win. <laughs> um, so so uh, um, I, I think it was read by some people who weren't merely academics. Maybe they got, you know, sort of false advertisingly seduced in because of the title was a little bit sexier than otherwise. Um, but it got reviewed in, in places beyond just the professional journal. So it was reviewed in the New York Review of Books and um, the Times Literary Supplement. Uh, so, so I think that's part of why it, it, if people who read it weren't just in the academy, that was part of it. Right? So. You explored the evolutionary roots of this this notion or this mm. this quality. And I was wondering... Did it evolve? And I mean, if we had looked at disgust a century ago or two centuries ago, did, was disgust a, a, you know, a cultural thing? Right. Um, so, so part of the reason I got fascinated with disgust is exactly because I think this is a, it's a fair question and it's one which doesn't have an obvious answer. So there's people out there. I mean, I know, I know a historian who thinks that disgust was sort of culturally assembled about 300 years ago. Um, I very much disagree with that view, but I can see that there's, it, it's not sort of totally beyond the pale. Um, and so, so my view on disgust is it did indeed evolve. Um, it's an it's a emotion or it's a, it's a cognitive mechanism or it's a piece of human psychological nature, which is unique. So I think you can see the component parts of disgust. Um, you can see it, analogs of them in other our primate ancestors. Um, but it only sort of congealed in, and I, part of the book is a story that I'm telling about how, how this came to crystallize in the human mind, but didn't crystallize in, um, in other animals' minds. And what I think it is, is in part, it's a psychological response to a pair of threats. Um, one of those threats is eating things which are poisonous, eating things which are going to disrupt your gastrointestinal system. And part of the reason that's important for humans is because we're omnivorous. So we don't just eat eucalyptus leaves and we don't just eat other, you know, we're not like dogs where, where we have a scavenger's gut, which is you can eat anything which is nasty and it's just going to neutralize us. We can eat a lot of things. We inhabit a lot of different environments. Um, but some of the stuff out there, which is potential food, is going to mess us up. And so what disgust is, is it's sort of a way to, to learn and prevent us from eating this stuff, which is going to mess us up. The other side of disgust and one of the two sort of core components or um, main directives of this emotion is it's the first line of defense for our immune system. So <clears throat> it's not T cells, you know, that fight microbes which have already infiltrated the body. What disgust is, is it's a sensitivity to the potential for infection and contagion in the environment. So it's part of our behavioral immune system rather than our sort of internal microbial immune system. And so things which are disgusting are, you know, other people who are obviously sick. Like we just have a, a, an avoidance response um, and kind of a visceral reaction to someone who has pussy sores on their face or, um, and, and so what disgust in humans is, is it's sort of the melding of both of these, of, of the machinery, which protects us against both of these threats into this emotion, which has this very recognizable facial expression, the, the sort of gape face or the yuck face. Uh, there's reason to think, I think there's good evidence that that's a cross-cultural universal. So that's like, you, you can go um, to another culture and if you make that face, they'll know immediately that like you're disgusted by something and they'll probably want to know what it is that you're disgusting, disgusted by so they can avoid it as well. It's a very useful and clear signal, sort of of social signaling. Um, and then some of the things which are disgusting um, are also universal. Uh, so phenotypic abnormalities is one way to talk about it. Um, that, but then the, the sort of rough draft of the idea of what's, what's universally disgusting can get specified and calibrated and made more precise 
via cultural information. So there's also a wide range of cultural variation in what's disgusting. And so there's a role for, for culture to, to sort of you know, take this piece of our psychology and shape it in ways which will make it more effective given the environment that the person lives in. When I was in New York, when I lived in New York, I used to swim in this very crowded swimming pool. There were eight people in my land. It was just a pain in the ass. And there was at one point where I was stuck for a couple of weeks, it seemed like, with a guy who was swimming with only one leg. Mm. And I had some sort of visceral reaction. I yep. never really thought about it. But, I mean, it was clear, where did that come from? Where, right. where, <laughs> you know, I just, it just was hard to deal with. It's I think that's exactly it. It's, it's things, and, and so what, what is normal phenotypically that can vary from culture to culture. So it can even be something like skin color um, that, you know, people around here look like this. Here's someone who doesn't look like this. And that shapes this particular response. And it's just this weird aversion. Um, it's also one of these, these pieces of our psychology, which seems like it's in weird ways immune or recalcitrant or sort of compartmentalized off from what we think explicitly, from what we know. So, you know, the famous examples like this is, uh, you know, chocolate or fudge, which is shaped to look like dog turds. There's a, you know, there's a sense in which people, like, you know that it's just fudge. Like, that, the conscious, explicit part of your head knows that there's nothing disgusting about it. But just knowing that can't totally shut down the aversive response you have. So I'm guessing you probably had something similar with this, with your experience. Where I, I know there's nothing yeah. wrong here, but that, just knowing that doesn't shut down the sort of this lower level piece of our emotional repertoire. I also wanted to ask you about methodology. You sound in talking to, you know, you sound like a social scientist, but you're not. You're a philosopher. So uh, what was the methodology? I mean, how do you describe the methodology for, for doing the research for Yuck? So my home base for me as a philosopher is very much, uh, it's on, I'm a consumer of a lot of social science and cognitive science. Um, to some extent that I'm making theoretical claims, like I claim that disgust is a unique part of human psychology and that other animals don't have it. So that's, that's an empirical claim, right? Um, but the, the argumentative basis there isn't just reflection on concepts or something. I'm, I'm trying to synthesize what we know um, from a number of different channels in the behavioral and cognitive sciences. So sometimes, you know, people who are working in the trenches and doing, doing the very hard and important work of, you know, experiments and crunching data and publishing studies um, don't, don't have the time to take a step back and make the larger claims or try to fit all the pieces together. Um, of course, they do do that sometimes as well. But that, to the extent that that's part of the project here, it's, again, it's very much I'm trying to work from an evidential basis to make theoretic claims having to do with the structure of the mind and what human nature is like. Um, I also, in the book, at the end of the book, I go on to draw some, some implications for uh, different disputes in moral theory. So not how the mind is or not what, discussed, um, not what disgust necessarily does, but what it should do or how we should treat our feelings of disgust, um, given what we know about, like, descriptively and explanatorily about this piece of human nature. <laughs> um, Right, so, so there's these debates, uh, um, sort of large debates in philosophy about the role that intuitions should play in our construction of moral theory, like, like our sort of gut responses to various cases, whether or not we should give them moral or, or epistemic credibility. And so the specific one was this, this question of if, if you are disgusted by something or if a wide range of sort of the, the population is disgusted by something, so a practice like same-sex marriage or human cloning or stuff like that, should, should the disgust response or the fact that a lot of people have feelings of disgust towards the practice count in favor of thinking that it's morally wrong? So what should our moral theory say about it? 
Um, and the position I took on that was I just sort of took the most extreme position and saw how far I could defend it. And the position was absolutely not discussed. It's totally irrelevant from the point of view of morality. And then to the extent that we can, <coughs> we should sideline it. We should minimize the role that it has in um, in figuring out what position we want the law to take on these practices, we should sort of set that, set that aside. So it's a piece of human nature, but it's not one we should celebrate when we're trying to do more reflective morality. And we also know that disgust, um, it tends to dehumanize its object when its object is other people. Um, and now there's, you know, I tell a story about why that is, and I just sort of make the next move and say, oh, by the way, we shouldn't use disgust as a social tool because it dehumanizes people and we don't want to dehumanize people, obviously. Um, the other thing that's happening at Stanford and in many academic centers around the country now is this real intense engagement with uh, technology and ethics. Mm. Um, it's become part of the curriculum. There, are, uh, I, I like to say that there are ethics course littered around the Stanford campus. Now, and you, you apparently have been engaged in ethics That's and right. technology at, at Purdue. Um, do you have a perspective? Well, two questions. I mean, mm-hmm. um, many questions, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, so, well, let me, let me get into it in one way to ask you about one of the things that Harvard's done, the computer science department, mm-hmm. there is now in every CS class at Harvard, there is a module taught by a graduate student from a philosophy department. Oh, that's which, great. Which is really interesting. So that people are forced to engage themselves with with this thing. It's just happened. Is it going to make a difference, I guess, is the question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. um, is it going to make a difference? I, I mean, I wish I knew the answer to that question. You certainly hope so. Um, Purdue's doing similar things. So there's, you know, there's data mine stuff happening and there's, uh, there's a movement from the engineering, which is the huge part of Purdue, from the engineering uh, college that no one graduates with a degree without having taken some ethics courses. And then how to, how to manage that and how much the philosophy department's going to contribute to it is also um, in the mix. But we've been thinking very hard about, as a department, how, how to teach those courses in a way which will make a difference. Um, and I think that to the extent that there's promise there, it's that we're learning that the right way to teach those classes is not the way you would teach those classes to someone who's a philosophy major or someone who's just taking an intro to ethics class. Um, and we're, we're changing them so that they're very much case, it's case studies rather than just here's utilitarianism, here's the Kantian ethics view, and like at a very abstract level. And so we have classes where people are working through um, you know, cases which went afoul of the sorts of moral and ethical codes that you would expect govern how you build a building or what sorts of, you know, how you, how you write codes such that it's not biased one way or another. Um, and I, I think that has the promise to be more, to, to actually be effective, um, that you're, a lot, you're, you're getting kids to think through the ethical issues um, it, on their home turf, essentially. Um, and it's not the way philosophy classes often get taught, but we're, uh, we're hoping that this... You know, adapting to the times will provide some fruit. Have you had the chance to engage directly with engineers or software engineers about algorithmic bias in particular? Or I was on a grant on, um, I think the title was Algorithmic Bias, <laughs> a couple years ago with um, the, the PI there was someone in the computer science department at Purdue. And, you know, we, we had a lot of conversations and... Um, I, it got me thinking about this stuff a lot. And there's there's a growth industry, a small growth industry, but I think it has legs and philosophy of people doing philosophy of information and algorithmic bias and oppression as through various data structures. Um, 
it got me thinking about how, so, so that's not my specialty at all, right? So, so, so part of where my efforts got devoted was let, we need to hire someone who, who does this, like this is their, their area of specialty, not just competence or anything like that, um, to help us think through this. But part of what that got me thinking about from sort of my own uh, research home base and human nature was there's this, there's this intuitive distinction between sort of intelligence and wherewithal, which is natural versus artificial. And I think that distinction is untenable, actually, um, because I think, uh, I think human intelligence it, from the get-go, what makes us different from other species, how we, how we got here from an evolutionary point of view, is that we externalize our intelligence. We build gadgets which solve problems, uh, and you know, we build technology, and that's, you know, we have technological minds, and um, the boundary between what's inside and what's outside is extremely porous. Um, but I think that distinction between the artificial... And natural intelligence feeds into this fallacy that is that is still with us, um, that we, we tend to grant what we think of as artificial intelligence or algorithms or anything which has like a mathematical basis, way too much epistemic authority, way too soon. So, so a, a, a good example of this would be someone who's driving around in their car and they have their GPS telling them what to do. And instead of like trusting the evidence of their senses, they just turn when the GPS tells them to turn. And you know, there's all kinds of cases where people drive into lakes or through like the front door of a, a building or something. And so they, they've just sort of outsourced this, the, the problem of navigating to a GPS, to an algorithm basically. And then they, they stop thinking about it. They just think it's gotta be right. You know, it's, it's objective or it has some sort of epistemic authority, which we don't have. Um, and I think we, this has happened on a, on, on a societal level already to some extent. So um, you see places where recidivism rates um, are calculated by algorithms and then just sort of um, tr given this sort of trust. Like it must be right. It's math. It's algorithm. It has this objectivity which humans don't have. Um, but we know that there's already there's bias baked into the data sets that they're learning from. The algorithms can just amplify that bias and propagate it in various ways. Um, so that, that's my interaction with people thinking about algorithmic bias and, and this sort of thing. That's, that's where it sort of led me on the path that's led me down. I really want to ask you about um, machine autonomy. I mean, because mm. I, I tend to worship at the church of a, a computer scientist who's named Ben Schneiderman, who actually argues against machine autonomy for ethical reasons. He argues that the danger in autonomy in, 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 in building these autonomous systems is yep. you separate uh, the machine from human responsibility. And uh, totally agree. Yeah. yeah. But that's not a popular perspective yet. Mm. I mean, we're still, I mean, in Silicon Valley, there yeah. is still a lot of investment in, in building and, you know, setting these machines free. That is part of the culture of Silicon Valley. Yeah. And I think that perspective that, so, so I guess, then, so how do you think about embedding an ethics in a machine? I guess, I mean, right. uh, in the end, they're human ethics, right? But... Yeah, we want them to do. We want them to do what we want them to do, <laughs> not what they want to do. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a thorny issue. I totally agree. But one one of the things you said um, resonated with me that we we just want to set them free. But we also there's this way of thinking about what autonomy is. Is it something that we can just build and then sort of impute in them? Like you know, if we just make the algorithm work the right way, or if we built the build the sensory apparatus and the motor the right way, then they'll then they'll have autonomy. It'll just emerge from what they have. But I, I think a, a better way to think about that is autonomy is something that we collectively grant. Um, 
right? So, so we, this, this is how we treat people. Like, you know, there's little kids and they don't really have legal autonomy until they're 18 years old. They have to, and then once they have this autonomy, well, then a certain set of duties and a certain set of responsibilities are sort of granted to them. And then they're held accountable when they don't comply with those duties or responsibilities. Um, and I, I mean, this is, this, is, this is vague and big picture, but my sense is that, that that's got to be the way that we're treating whatever the autonomous vehicles or, or whatever autonomous algorithms or AI, AIs are, is that they don't have autonomy till we give it to them. And right now we're giving it to them way too soon. There's this other question of whether or not that's the ideal that we should be aspiring to. This might have been what you were speaking to. Is it the, the embedded in Silicon Valley? It's just we want to build this stuff and then turn them loose into the world. That's, that's what kind of you said. Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah, in, in some sense, uh, is that really what we want to be doing is just to turn them loose? I mean, what we want to be doing is not have to think about the stuff that we want them to do anymore. But I, I think that's just... So Schneiderman yeah. makes this distinction I, that I really like between autonomy and automation. Mm. And automation is, Good. you know, within the framework of human control, human in the loop kinds of ideas. You can still automate tasks, right. but the human is... That's his model of thinking about it. I, I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it's pointing to a really crucial distinction. Yeah. Um, right. And again, if we're trying to build things which are automated versus autonomous and whether or not we want to grant anything complete autonomy are yeah, connected questions. But I, my, my sense is that, look, we, we have all these norms in place. We have all this, this ethical, you know, a buildup of centuries and millennia worth of ethical apparatus that we use to, to assess and keep each other in line. We have all the social technology of morality. Um, and what we do when we raise a child is we sort of induct them very slowly into it before we treat them as an autonomous agent who's going to be governed by this, these, these norms. Um, why think that it's going to be any different with AIs or other autonomous yeah, kinds of technology? That's a, that's a good analogy. Um, as a philosopher, have you been dragged into the trolley problem? Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, it's a, I hesitated to bring it up, but it's, <clears throat> it's, I mean, it's the prism through which we've looked at, at self-driving vehicles. Right, right. And um, so there's a paper that came out a year or two ago that, that looked cross-culturally at different ways that different cultures respond to the trolley problem and different variations of the trolley problem and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. Is my opinion on the trolley problem um, as a philosopher is that you know, save five lives versus save one life. It's you always go for the five. <laughs> yeah. um, but how to implement that and the sensitivities or, or what people are sensitive to when they think there's important differences between variations of the, the trolley problem. So, so um, right, if you're, yeah. if you're just flipping a switch versus pushing someone off a bridge or um, how to build that into into various AIs, I mean, there's not even, there's not even consensus amongst humans about what the right thing to do is in the various cases. How, how, how are we going to deal with that? With, uh, with well, the way you framed it, I just realized that the, something I've struggled with, um, so there's, in the artificial intelligence and autonomous weapons debate now, they're, they're, the principal argument in favor of them goes back to, uh, about 20 years ago, I did some reporting with one of the engineers. He was at SRI International who had been one of the designers of the first smart bombs. And he was French. And he explained his personal ethical rationale for what he did. And it was because he grew up in a French village. And his village, um, as he described it, had during World War II been subject to both Allied and German bombing. And they were trying to destroy a bridge in that village. 
and they spent the entire war trying to hit the, the bridge, and they hit everything in the village but the bridge. Oh, and so his argument was, his justification for designing smart weapons is if you can d kill the bridge with one bomb, right. that is you know, morally preferable. Uh, and I've struggled. I can't get it out of my head because, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm raised as a pacifist, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but obviously that he's dealing with a real-world phenomenon, and people mm -hmm. have transformed transferred that argument into a defense for AI-based weapons. Mm. Um, AI weapons uh, you know, will be more intelligent, and they will also, the argument is, not, um, not commit war crimes. You could design <laughs> an AI so that it wouldn't get angry or... Right, right, right. More surgical, more precise, yeah. less collateral damage. Yeah. Oh, that is a great argument. Um, so, so that, in context with the trolley problem, that made me think of this... this um, weird disparity, which may, may the way people respond to these may be uh, informed by this. So, with the trolley problem, you have these two cases where one is you can you can uh, push someone off a bridge and it'll stop the the trolley, and so one person dies, but it stops the trolley, so the five other people don't die. And another one is where you're sort of off distant from the action, and you can you can flip a switch and divert the trolley from hitting the five people, so that it goes onto another track and you hit one person and they die. And, and sort of the common response is that it's okay to flip the switch, but it's not okay to push the person off the bridge, even though from a numbers point of view, you're exactly the same thing is happening. Right. And the, the rationale that a lot of people give is that um, there's something about, well, an explanation for this, this divergence in response is that there's something morally icky about the up close and personal pushing of something off the bridge, but then it's okay if you're just sort of using technology to intervene and if you're far off. And so that licenses this use of technology to do something. Um, on the other hand, a lot of people have this real, this sort of icky kind of yuck response to the idea of drone warfare or to of, of like technologically mediated uh, interventions and killing like this, um, which is strange because they thought it was okay in the one case, but not okay in the other case. Um, yeah, so I think maybe the, the one conclusion to draw from that is that people have incoherent views about what, how technology should be used and, and these sorts of cases and in warfare um, when you're, you know you're intending to bring about death one way or another or destruction, I guess, in one way or another. Um, and the argument that your friend gave is maybe one of, it's giving really good voice to some of the contradictory impulses that people have behind these. Yeah, it's, oh, I'm gonna wrestle with that for, <laughs> for a while now. Um, finally, um, I got the sense that, uh, you know, Silicon Valley, despite being beat on, you know, culturally and politically in the last, it remains, uh, I think, largely a, a community that's techno-optimistic. Yes. I got the sense that maybe you're 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 not so much, and, and that um, I know people now it's fashionable to talk about unintended consequences. So they've made a step to sort of understand that you sort of have to think about things. But yeah. they uh, take everything away. They still it's a hammer and nail kind of situation. If you mm -hmm. have you know like now it's AI. AI will solve all problems. Right. It's sort of the sense. Of it. Uh, I I think on the one hand I used to be just sort of blatantly techno techno optimistic, um, and just. Figured, you know, we'll have problems and then someone will be able to make a fortune by solving them. And so that'll induce them to go out and solve them. Um, I just wonder now if we're like the problems are on a scale at which uh, we don't even understand them that well. And they require not just 
what we what we usually think of as technology, um, you know, building new gadgets and having scientific breakthroughs. But what what they're going to like the climate change, for instance, that requires not just advances in science and sort of um, physical material technology, but we clearly need some sort of advance in our political technology as well. Like it re it requires us to like take political action, and and it's a collective action problem, which a new gadget or a new like you know way to. Well, um, yeah. We we need that as well, and that and the, my 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 understanding of the the current state of affairs is what's maybe uh, dampened my enthusiasm for sort of purely technological solutions. Um, is that again the scope of the problem is just uh, enormous. Yeah. That said, I I kind of do have faith in like the 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 cultural evolutionary process of maybe no one individual mind or one individual valley <laughs> um, is going to come up with, with things which are going to be game changers. But, um, you know, we are all working together and we're all, we're all connected to each other in a way which is unprecedented in human history. So maybe, maybe collectively we'll be able to do something that we hadn't been able to do in the past and at a speed that is, you know, um, going to allow us to address those sorts of challenges um, in the, the time frame that they need to be addressed. Yeah, that was one of the original uh, sort of framing arguments of Silicon Valley, actually. You know, Doug Engelbart, who was one of the sort of the original pioneers in 62, had this notion of intellectual augmentation, and he set out mm -hmm. to build tools that would accelerate the collaborative abilities of small groups of intellectual workers. I mean, that was the founding principle yeah. of Silicon Valley in some ways. Certainly was the founding principle of the ARPANET. It's almost the founding principle of this place, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. absolutely true. You're right. I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point to end on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for spending time with us. I'd actually love to continue the autonomy question with you mm. separately, I mean, as, as a reporter, so maybe we can have that conversation sure. again. <laughs> to learn more about the topics in this episode, check out the show notes. There you can find links to works from our guests and relevant articles, including Dan's entertaining and engaging book, Yuck! The Nature and Moral Significance of Disgust by MIT Press. Human Centered is a show from the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University and is produced by Michael Jatani and Joseph Monzel. I'm John Markoff. Thanks for listening.